Thank you for joining us. This is Jason Bruckner of Brave Daily, and I have with us uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, and he's a scholar in residence at Faith Life. It's echoing. Not getting it here. Okay. Um, okay, I thought I heard an echo. So we're going to talk through a new book that Dr. Heiser has just released. It's entitled The Unseen Realm, and it's published by Lexham, Lexham Press. And um, Dr. Heiser, why don't you take a second and introduce yourself and tell us about a day in your life. Well, I'm scholar in residence at Faith Life, formerly Lagos Bible Software. Lagos Bible Software is still alive and well, just you know, nestled under the uh, new court name. Been here 11 years. I've done a variety of things, mostly academic work, language, ancient language stuff, reference work, and of course, writing. Uh, the Unseen Realm is the latest uh, product of that. Uh, by a day in the life, do you want me to relate the uh, anecdote that I sort of have at the beginning of the beginning of the book? Yeah, I, that'd be great. Um, okay. Well, that yeah. was sort of what led to the, uh, you know, to this project. I mean, I was. This is about 15 years ago. I was in graduate school and uh, I'm in the Hebrew Studies Department at Wisconsin. And a friend of mine who was also in the department, we were trying to kill some time before church. And I don't remember the discussion at all, but I just remember how it ended. Uh, he handed me his Hebrew Bible and was turned to Psalm 82 and verse 1. He said, here, you need to read that in Hebrew. And I did. And it was you know, Elohim, the word for God takes his stand in the divine council, and in the midst of the Elohim, the gods, he passes judgment. And I don't remember a word of the sermon, because <laughs> I was tracking on that the whole time, and I thought, how in the world could I have never seen that before? I had taught biblical studies on the undergrad level for five years. Like I said, I was in a PhD program, and I had never seen anything like that. It, it sounded spooky, you know, like a pantheon, and it just sort of froze me and then that became sort of my research interest really up until today so i've been had my i've had my head in this for 15 years uh, what we now broadly would call the unseen world of the ancient israelite not not of us not our conceptions about that but how would an ancient person think about that part of their theology and really how does how would an ancient israelite parse their bible you know, when they read it, what were they thinking? What were they tracking on? And that's really what I want to try to communicate in the book. Yeah. So, so many of my readers are, um, I guess, they're pastors on the go. They're students that are just trying to keep up with the latest publications. Um, they, they're lay people, you know, for, to use that term, but they, they just are trying to keep up with what's being published. And um, so, Unseen Realm is a big, thick book. Um, there's there's a lot of information in it, and there's references in uh, to <laughs> ancient languages, really. And so, could you give us maybe a ten thousand foot view of uh, you said the fifteen years or so leading up to the publication of the book, and and what really drove that discussion of the divine council? Right. Um, but but what is the book about as a whole? And then what as a follow up question? What's the one or two things that you'd love for someone to take away? Um, from your book. Okay. Well, let not your heart be troubled. My mom is reading this book. <laughs> my mom, but an academic book to my mom is like left behind. I don't know that she's read a nonfiction book. 
So if she can do it, you can do it. Uh, what, what I'm really angling for here is, again, if we're sitting in a small group Bible study, and we know how these things work, you know, we're reading a passage, what does this mean to you? And if we had someone from the second millennium B.C., 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, in that room, when you got to him, his answer is going to be quite different than anything else you've ever heard because he comes from a different world. So what I'm trying to do is get people to read the Bible through not our own traditions, but something that an ancient person would be thinking. Hmm. And when it comes to the actual content, it's really a, a sweeping narrative from Genesis to Revelation that, that tracks a number of threads in biblical theology and shows where they start, how they, can, how they run through the whole Bible, and how they intersect with each other. And it really focuses on, you know, some of the big picture elements would be our status. The, the, for instance, in the New Testament, you know, we're used to language about Christians as being adopted or being sons of God. Uh, you know, the creation groans until the revelation of the sons of God. And you get this, again, this, some of this terminology. Jesus presents us uh, before the congregation in chapter, yeah. Hebrews chapter 2. All of that language is rooted, has an antecedent in the Old Testament. And even if we could find that, even that material is framed by a very ancient world that we don't share. And so all these familiar things have a history. Where Jesus goes and what he says when he's there matters mm -hmm. because all those places have a history. Uh, the gospel writers are, are really pulling out. They're very selective, as we know, in what they present. And what they have Jesus saying, what the apostles do in certain places, and the terminology they use to speak of believers and the nations around them, all of that has, a, has an Old Testament context. But not only that, that Old Testament context involves a relationship between things that happen on earth and things that are happening in heaven. There's, there's an as in heaven, so on earth relationship that we often miss when we talk theology or when we do Bible study, but for the ancient person predisposed to thinking in very supernatural terms that, you know, the, the, the gods, okay, the, all the supernatural stuff is real, and it's a part of our life all the time. Everything we do is somehow affected by that world and affects that world in return. And there's all sorts of passages in the Bible that to us look bizarre and peripheral, that really tap into that world. So I'm trying to hit most of them and show how they connect with each other and how they work out and explain who we are as the people of God, what our status is as members of the family of God, members of God's rulership, ultimately, this whole council idea. We replace the members of the divine council. That's why in the book of Revelation, we're we, Jesus says, I'll share with them the morning star. That's a messianic term. I will put them over the nations. It comes from Deuteronomy 32, uh, verses 8 and 9, where God punished the nations by abandoning them and putting them under the authority of the sons of God. We, we are the, the, the displacement of that. We are the ultimate outcome of all that. And so spiritual warfare has a direct impact on our ultimate destiny and the way these things get talked about. And so it's familiar language, but it, what it, you know, how it bleeds into you know, other things in the Bible and intersects with each other is often something we miss. 
So that's really the purpose of the book, to show you all that, sort of peel back what is familiar and show you how an ancient Israelite would have thought about these things that we talk about all the time. Right. The, the familiarity um, is interesting. I mean, I think of even um, the plurality of, of Elohim in just Genesis 1 that is often overlooked. And, right. yeah, why, do, um, why does it say, let us create humankind in our image? Right. That verse a hundred times. Right. There's a reason why it's plural, and there's a reason why it switches from the plural back to the singular. And again, it, it, it's not hard to see those things, but to think about those things the way, again, the original writer would have, and the way his original audience would have thought about what they were reading, is quite different than what we're accustomed to hearing. So, um, say you're, you sit down with your mom, or you're riding an elevator from the first to the fifth floor. Um, what would you, what, what, what is your book about? Yeah, it, it's about the relationship of the unseen world to the, the world of humanity. How God originally had a plan. He creates humankind as his image. And the reason it's plural, going back to that, is the unseen, members of the unseen realm are also his creations. They're also intelligent beings. And the intention of Eden was to have everybody as one big happy family living in God's house at his home office. This is where he's going to run everything. They're assigned to make Eden, make the rest of the world like Eden, spread Eden. And it just gets destroyed. And the rest of the story of the Bible is how to recover that, how to restore the original vision. And what the book does is trace, you know, those ideas and a lot more ideas to, to show how what God wants to do is have us with him, with, again, beings that we think of as supernatural, angels, whatever, that we're all supposed to be one unit, one family, one administration, okay? one you know, business, family business kind of thing, enjoying Eden and you know, really working for God and enjoying all of the things that he's made. But going from where it fell apart to where it's supposed to end is this long, long story, and it's a story filled with conflict. So I want people to sort of read about the conflict, but think about what's going on behind the scenes and how viewing ourselves as God's images okay, with the intent that we would be divine, we would be glorified. And we, and we know about that in Christian theology. You know, when we die, that's our destiny, and we're going to go to heaven and all that stuff. But, you know, there, there's a way to think about it that, is quite more dramatic, quite quite different than what we, you know, are, are associated with it. Like I, I was in an inter interview recently, right? We were talking about heaven, and I don't know about you, but the way heaven gets talked about is just incredibly boring. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh we're going to be singing and praising God all day. Well, I mean, I can, you know, we'll be we'll be in heaven someday, and I don't want to look at you and say, hey, what are we doing today? And your answer would be just what we did yesterday, you know. It, it's not like that. Heaven is the Edenic earth and all that goes with it. And our status in that world is a very high status because of God's original intention that gets destroyed and then progressively brought back in real time, but also in conjunction with beings that we don't see and that have a part in God's, in moving God's program forward. 
So I hear, um, as you're talking, and I'm kind of thinking through um, different maybe classes I've sat in or professors that I've listened to or lecturers or um, reading that I've done. Um, it's not, I hear themes of, I hear the meta-narrative and I hear gospel-centered. Um, I hear new creation aspects. Um, kind of curious about some of the more influential voices and or some books that you may recommend for someone who has a divine counsel revelation similar to what you had and wants to dig into um, to this A&E world a little bit further and understand uh, this lens of reading and interpreting scripture? Yeah, you know, it, it's a, that's actually a tough question because most of what I read is uh, in journals or critical scholars that I would be hesitant to recommend for one reason or the other. In the evangelical orbit a few years ago, and I, I've not read the book, but I've, I've hmm. certainly heard, uh, I've had conversations with Greg Boyd, God at War. He has a, a little bit of a little section on the Divine Council. Uh, so evangelicals might be familiar with that, even though I, you know, Greg and I would not, uh, I wouldn't be the, in the openness category like he is. But I, we've, we've talked enough, and I've, you know, I've gone to hear certain papers of him that I know he's tracking on some of these things. So if you read that book, if you're familiar with that, there'd be some overlap there. Um, but a lot of a lot of what's in this book, people will never have heard of before, hmm. because scholars. I mean, you're you're a Wheaton grad, and you know this is true. The way scholars talk about scripture and what they see in it, how they read it, is quite different than what you see or hear in church. And my thinking was, you know, that shouldn't be, because there's a lot of payoff to spending time in this ancient Near Eastern stuff or this original context you know, kind of thing that really matters and really makes, makes this or that passage really cool, really has an explanatory power, but it never filters down. So what I wanted to do in Unseen World is, is take lots and lots and lots of peer-reviewed information and make it decipherable and readable. And even though it is a thick book, and yeah, it has lots of footnotes, and I give you the breadcrumb trails to all the sources, um, you know, I, I have found overwhelmingly you know, pastors and lay people say that this is this is a lot more readable than I thought it would be. You know, when I picked it up because it weighs a lot, you know, it's hardcover. But that's the goal, you know, to try to make that comprehensible and, and show how it matters. I, I, I could give one example of a passage that people have heard of a hundred times or a thousand times and, and never parsed it like an ancient person. Acts 2. How many times have we heard the story of Pentecost? Mm -hmm. What you haven't heard and again, the documentation for this is in the book, is that the list of nations given in Acts 2 is an east to west flow that tracks with the nations of Genesis 10, except for Tarshish, which is not in the list, but Tarshish turns out to be Spain, and this is why Paul says, I got to get to Spain, I got to get to Spain, I got to get to Spain toward the end of his life, because in his mind, he's completing the work of Pentecost. He understands that what happened at Pentecost was what? It was the beginning of the reclamation and of, of the nations that God had disinherited back at, at Babel in Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9, when he puts them under the authority of lesser gods, the sons of God. Those nations have to be reclaimed. And it's no accident that there are hooks in that passage back to Genesis 11, back to Deuteronomy 32, because the writer wants you to see that now it has begun. God is going to reclaim the nations, and this is the way the direction of the gospel moves. And Paul, at the end of his life, is convinced 
he tells he tells the Romans when he's writing to them, hey, I can't wait to see you guys, but guess what? I'm just going to stay there for a while because I'm going to go to Spain. He is the living embodiment of this reversal, this great mm -hmm. reversal. But you, you'd never get that unless you understood the worldview of Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, what the table of nations is for. You never get to it. It's just random. There's nothing in Scripture that is random. It's intelligent. It's laid out. It's there for a reason. It's selective for a reason. It's arranged for a reason. We just don't pick up on it because we don't, we're not in that world. We're, we're not tuned in to what the writer is trying to do to us and for us. And hopefully you know, the Unseen Realm will help some of those lights go on. People will begin to notice certain things and connect certain dots that will help them you know, have the Israelite in their head or have the first century Jew in their head. Um, and I want to go into uh, what, what I'll call a pop quiz in a second. Um, and there are a few different people who have submitted some questions, and I want to get to those. We do want to give away a few copies of, of The Unseen Realm to listeners, and then um, just appreciate you guys being here to sit in on this, uh, to submit your questions, to follow this this book launch. It's been extremely successful. Um, uh, one last question that's kind of, when I first picked it up, this is what I thought that the main point was about. Um, and, and well, I can't this. <laughs> What's that? Sorry. Can't wait to hear this. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I, I thought it was it was it is on the spiritual realm. Um, I thought it was more strongly, especially with uh, some of the other work that you've done in the past, where it's this, um, I don't know, pro thought provoking, even uh, other realm. Uh, you know, I was thinking extraterrestrial. Um, say weird stuff. <laughs> right. So. Um, what I was wondering was how have how especially tracing the meta narrative how do you see the spiritual realm kind of ebb and flow in biblical uh, in the biblical narrative because you don't see a lot of this angels demons spiritual stuff um, in the Old Testament um, and even maybe even prior to the Jewish um, you know I'm I'm, you know, I'm I'm just thinking of how it kind of evolves with the prophets and I think of how it kind of comes out of nowhere in a sense where the, all of a sudden there's there's these worlds colliding, and then you see Jesus' work and how that completes that. But through the Old Testament, it, you see the uh, polytheism kind of voice, um, but then it just is a strong shift. Um, so well, how I, do you speak well, to that? I don't think the that Orthodox Israelite thinking, I do not think, evolved from polytheism to monotheism. Mm -hmm. uh, the, yes, there's divine plurality plural Elohim. But for, that was a term you used if you wanted to designate what domain a being was naturally in or from. Uh, it has nothing to do with attributes. That's why the disembodied dead can be called Elohim and Yahweh can be called Elohim. They are not ontologically the same. They do not have the same attributes. An Israelite writer would say Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh, period. End of story. And, and I, I actually disagree. I think I can hear some Walton in you there. And I think Walton and others are wrong to think that there is a, is a downplay of uh, the supernatural world in the Old Testament. I think it's pretty much everywhere, uh, and, it, and it's presumed. Because if, if the biblical story is what it is, and the nations are divided at Babel, Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, when he divided up the nations, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God, that becomes the framework for the entire Old Testament. 
these lesser divine beings that were supposed to be administrators of the other nations while Yahweh went and created Israel. And they were supposed to be, according to Acts anyway, uh, some sort of play some sort of role in those nations coming back to Yahweh, but they didn't according to Psalm 82. They become corrupt, they seduce the Israelites. That whole series of events frames the entirety of the Old Testament. That's why it's Yahweh against the gods, that's why it's Israel against the nations. And you see this played out in lots of little snippets. The Philistines, you know, they, they take the ark, they capture the ark, oh, good for us. Of course, we know the story about Dagon. They put him in the, you know, the ark there in the temple of Dagon. Dagon comes out of stump. Well, we miss this little phrase in the narrative that says, from that day forward, the Philistines did not tread upon the area where they found Dagon. Why? Because now that was Yahweh's turf. He had demonstrated superiority in that domain. So while there was still a temple of Dagon, we'll go in, but we're walking around that spot. Why does Naaman, after he's healed, why does he go back to Elisha and say, hey, I, now I know that Yahweh is the God of gods, and if it's okay, can I load my mule up with dirt and take it to Syria? Because, you know, i got to go into the temple of Ramon, and the king's going to be there with me, and I, I, this is a job I have to do. I want dirt to take back with me. Well, what does that mean? It means Israel is holy ground because this is Yahweh's portion according to Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. The other nations are not. This is why David says when he gets kicked out of Judah, how can I pray to the most high? Well, he's not denying omnipresence. It's just this is a consciousness throughout the entirety of the Old Testament that the gods are real. They have real power. They hate Yahweh. And there is a spiritual conflict that is in play all the time that affects what we don't see and what we do see, what we're up against that we know and what we don't know. And it, it plays into the New Testament in, in dozens of passages. So I think they were very conscious of this, much less than we are, mm -hmm. because it was, it was their worldview. Again, it's, it's the supernatural worldview of the biblical writers. And so, when, like I said, when Jesus goes to certain places and says certain things, it, it's a loaded conversation. Right. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a whole back history, both in terms of what you read in the Old Testament and what people believed about these places, that factors into why the gospel writers would pick that occasion and that conversation, because it's about theological messaging. But we're not privy to any of that unless we have that ancient person in our head. We just miss it. Right. I'm, I'm thinking, too, along this We'll get into the pop quiz right after this. If you do have a question, people who are listening in, um, there's a Q&A section to submit um, any questions. And yes, Aaron, you're right on the money. That's where the comments and that's where the thread goes. So I am tracking with you and I'm following. Um, I'm thinking of, of my followers, especially here, um, Dr. Heiser, in, in the ancient you know, this ancient culture, how can they stay attuned to what's being said other than always having your book there to reference? Well, the, 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 the book does give, again, people lots of breadcrumbs. They can, you know, follow along, uh, go, go research any given point in the book. I mean, there's nothing in there that they're not going to be able to find data for. Uh, one of the things I contributed to that is sort of on a lighter level sure. is the Faith Life Study Bible. So you'll get threads, little bits and pieces of that in the Faith Life Study Bible, and that's free you know, online. So 
that'll help people in different passages, at least in, in, the, in the Torah, some of the portions that I did. Um, we're coming out later with a distillation of Unseen Realm. It's going to be a book supposed to launch in, in December. It might show up before that, who knows. But it's going to be called Supernatural, which takes the core ideas of Unseen Realm and, again, just presents them in a trade book, in a kind of version. Now, for this one, when Supernatural is released, we're also going to release a what we're calling a primer. It's going to be sort of set up like a catechism in, in that it's Q&A. So that'll be a real small you know, book, but it'll help pastors and Bible study group leaders uh, reduce the content of Unseen Realm to just like one or two sentence statements. And again, those are beginning points for conversation. So there will be things that come down the road. But, you know, Faith Life Study Bible is a good place for it. Bible Study Magazine, I have 70 articles in there, and a lot of them are, are sort of this kind of stuff. Again, uh, written for the, you know, the new Bible, and anybody from the new Bible student all the way up to the pastor. The, the magazine, every issue sort of has a range to it. Uh, so there, there are things that people, you know, can... Uh, you know, read and digest. Sure, that will help them along. But I would well, say just just put the time into it. And it, yeah, and it'll give you that. It'll you'll read. Um, you'll dig into that conversation once again, and it'll be on uh, the top of your mind as you're continuing your studies, as you're in small groups with friends and family, as you're going to church and listening to sermons. Um, this will be one of those lenses that you view scripture through, um, and and it'll cause you to dig into. I like to remind people that five minutes is a long time, and, and I'm a living proof of that. But I, didn't, I became a Christian when I was in high school, and I'm not saying this to joke around. I had heard of Jesus, and I had heard of Adam and Eve, and I had heard of Noah. I knew nothing beyond that point. Now, eventually, when, you know, when I got into high school, uh, when I was a junior, I became a believer. But I knew next to nothing, and I just determined I, I'm going to try to learn a little bit every day. You know. Five minutes is a long time. Hmm. I do that for 365 days. I know 365 things that I didn't last year. And it, it really, you know, people sort of get overwhelmed by scholars and Bible study reference tools and commentaries, all this stuff that, that gets put out, you know, even before you hit the Internet, you know, all that that's there. They need to realize five minutes is a long time. Just take five minutes of your day and learn something. It will have an amazing cumulative effect. Uh, in, in terms of your grasp of Scripture and your appreciation for, for the message of Scripture. That's true, and practical advice. That's great. Um, so I do have a couple questions here. There were a lot submitted, and to not turn this into a two-hour-long interview, um, I chose some um, that weren't nearly as intense. The first is um, from Vincent, um, and right. this is a nice segue into some other questions. But... Um, Vincent asks how such a learned scholar ends up in last place in fantasy baseball league. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We, we can't be good at everything. <laughs> can't, can't be. I understand that. You know what? That's only one league. That's only one league. One league is enough sometimes. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm in more than one, and I'm not in last in every league. So... I will remind everyone if there are questions that you have, there's a Q&A. It's a blue bubble. Um, you can click on that and ask a question, um, any question that you have there. So the second question is, um, 
<laughs> and I don't know how you may know the answer, but Genesis 1, Scripture reads that God said, uh, let there be light, let there be water, etc. Who might God have been saying that to? I think the answer to that is found later in chapter 1 when God uh, announces his intention to create humankind. I think, again, part of the reason for the plurals is that the members of the heavenly host are already there. We know from the sons of God, Job 38, 7, the sons of God are already there watching, you know, the, the earth being created. So I think that's who he's talking to. You know, the, the, other, the other beings that we don't see that are not human, that are his intelligent creatures that are there with him while he's busy in our world, in our realm. And the, um, and the next question is, you mentioned multiple gods, um, that's lowercase, in worldview of the ancient Israelites and their neighbors. What's the current status of these lesser gods? The current status of the lesser gods is they are, they are progressively losing their dominion. <laughs> uh, when we get to the New Testament, Paul adopts the language that is reserved for the, the, you know, the sons of God over the nations, the, the dominions, and all that. Just think about what Paul does. Paul does use the word demons a few times, but look at his vocabulary. Principalities, powers, dominions, mm. authorities, thrones, they are all geographical rulership terms. That is not an accident. And the, the story, the message of the gospel, is, is that those beings are being progressively displaced through the advance of the kingdom of God. So the answer is they're there. They're in opposition to us, to the message of the gospel, and they are progressively losing ground. That's the next question I had was how spiritual, spirituality has progressed across the Testament. So that's interesting. Um, yeah, that, that, that question's a little vague. Is, is, is it more specific than that at all? Or like, no. Spirituality? Um, no, there is not. There's hundreds more questions, though. Um, Should I pick a number? <laughs> so I will. Um, is there one about how well I did in the fantasy football draft? No, that one didn't come up at all. Nope. That's because I got A's in all my Yahoo drafts. <laughs> Um, and I'm not even familiar, but maybe you'll have insight on this. And this is, uh, this will be our third question. Uh, and the first one didn't really count. So this will be another winner uh, for the book, but your thoughts on Christian Jubilee and what is blaspheming the Holy spirit? You know, I, I'd really have to know what is meant by Christian Jubilee. Sure. Uh, it does mean different things to different people. If it's a reference to, you know, I don't want to be pejorative here. If it's a reference to, or at least too pejorative, to this notion of a prophetic timetable that has hooks into the blood moon stuff, if that's what it means, I have a pretty low view of that. I don't put any stock in the blood moon prophecies. Uh, I, I, I do think there's something to what scholars loosely call astral prophecy and astral theology. Mm. But having said that, I think the blood moon stuff is, um, 
I won't call it a deception because that's sinister, but I will call it pretty misguided. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know if that's really what they're angling for or not. Well, with as much discussion as there is on that right now, I don't know. It may be. Um, what, what would you say, the second part of the question, though, um, blaspheming the Spirit and um, how, maybe even how Holy Spirit plays into your day-to-day and what blaspheming the Spirit might mean practically. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I think blaspheming the Spirit is attributing the works of, of God, who is the Spirit, to the works of the devil. I think it's pretty pretty clear, you know, in, in the passage that this question you know, derives from. I, I think there's a sensitivity to that because the spirit was not a lesser being than God Himself uh, to not only the New Testament writers, but I would say also to the Old Testament writers. And so, uh, I, I'm certainly a Trinitarian. But I think that thinking comes from the Old Testament. Yes, you heard me correctly. Uh, my, my dissertation was actually on the Godhead of the Old Testament, which I wrote under a Jewish advisor, which was a tightrope act, to say the least. So I think there is a, a sort of a built-in sensitivity to that. I think it's, it's really attributing the works of God not only to the devil, but to anyone else. And as far as today... You know, can we blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I, th- I think if we if we do if we make statements like that and we believe that in our heart and we we attributed the works of God you know, to Satan or, or the powers of darkness, uh, I, I think we we tread on the same territory. But I don't think that that sin is outside the purview of God's forgiveness. You know, through the gospel. Would you like uh, one last bonus question? Sure. Um, so, um, Iru87, not sure what your name is, but uh, how do you take the flood narrative, Dr. Heiser, and is there any evidence to support the flood? Um, and then the, what, I think what they're getting at here is if it didn't happen, would it, it seemed to undermine the Nephilim and the effect that it had on uh, the curse. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think in, in the book, again, I devote three chapters to this. Okay. And I go through the different options where if, if you want to affirm a global flood, here's how you would think about the Nephilim, you know, showing up after the flood. And basically your argument there is, is a grammatical one from Genesis 6-4, where it says the Nephilim were upon the earth in those days and afterward. And most translations say when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. You, you actually could translate that whenever. And you'd have to argue sort of a for a recurrence of, of an event, of that event. Same thing happened later on. Uh, I think it probably makes more sense you know, for the Nephilim question to affirm a, glo- a local or regional view of the flood. Uh, there, there are certainly people who have argued really well uh, using phrases from the flood narrative like all flesh, the whole earth, all the earth, showing where the identical phrases show up elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, where it, it can't mean the entirety of humanity or the entire planet. Mm. So maybe we can take the, that semantics and put it back into the flood narrative and come out with something you know, local. Plus, the nations of Genesis 10, are, it's actually limited in terms of the geography. We don't have India, North America, South America, all that kind of stuff. You know, all, all the global flood you know, adherents are going to be familiar with this stuff. What's appealing about it is if it was a global or, or less than a global event, then the 
the linkage of the Nephilim and their descendants to the Philistines, who are the Sea Peoples, who originated from Judah. Uh, that that becomes kind of interesting uh, as far as a, a remnant survival there. But again, th these are all guesses. There are two or three other possibilities. You know, I discussed you know, the various possibilities in the book, and the people want all the details and which view they prefer. You know, they can they can go and, and read through all that material. Great. Um, well, I will um, close with cover shot of the Unseen Realm uh, by Dr. Michael Heiser. And thank you so much for you know uh, spending your time sharing uh, your thoughts, taking on pop quiz questions, Dr. Heiser. Thank you to anyone who sat in. Um, you can follow along um, with anything that's being pushed out by Lexham Press, Logos Bible Software, um, and a, a lot of other publishing houses uh, across the board by following Brave Daily. And uh, again, just thank you all, and thank Dr. Heiser for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you.